0: Hello, friends. Good morning or good afternoon or good evening, my friends. I have no idea when you're listening to this, but welcome to another episode of Improv and Magic. I'm your host, LD Madera, and I'm super happy that you're back here with me again. I'm also super happy about my guest today, my friend Casey Kasperson. Casey is a fantastic improv actor teacher, and comedian, and is co-owner of Sick Puppies Comedy, a fantastic comedy show that performs at the Doghouse Theater in Boca Raton, Florida. This guy is one of the most passionate and driven individuals I've ever met. Casey is a hard worker and a true gentleman. You'll hear a lot about how hard he hustles, and believe me, he hustles hard. Wait till you hear his story. And he stays committed to seeing every project through to the very end. I love this guy so much, and you're about to love him too. Here's my guest, Casey Casperson. With me now is an absolutely incredible human being. I love this guy so much. I always love hanging out with him. He is Casey Casperson. How you doing, my friend?
1: Dude, I'm great, LD. I am uh, great. I'm just like so excited that you'd have me on your podcast. Podcasts are fun all over, but uh, it's, a, it's a nice excuse to have another discussion with you.
0: Yeah, I don't think we had an opportunity to really sit one-on-one. I mean, we've had a lot of great interactions with each other, um, but, uh, but yeah, I love the fact that I finally had this opportunity to talk to you and, and get to know more about
1: you. Yeah, you know, you and I have uh, a relationship that I think goes back, I want to say like 13 years.
0: Uh, Has it been that long?
1: Yeah, I I think I started to, you know, when I was a part of Laughing Gas, I think I got invited to a couple of things, I think through In Yellow, where you guys were looking for someone to pepper in or to guest or something like this. So maybe in 2011... You know, 2010, 2011, something like that, uh, where I started to, to pop in here or there to, to JTF, and I get to be part of your love machine.
0: Oh, that's I do remember that.
1: Yes. And you came out as the magician, of yep, course. Yep, Uh And I think I came out as uh, Johnny Duche, who wore <laughs> three collared shirts, because if one collared shirt is douchey, then two additional <laughs> collared shirts is... Super yeah. douchey. I, yeah. I
0: do remember Mr. Douchey. That that was fun. That was fun. Yeah. Oh man. Um. I love uh the hat that you're wearing. The drive pink. And I noticed that you you do this um you do this race uh, every year where you dress yourself up uh completely pink, and that is basically in support of uh of breast cancer awareness. Am I right?
1: It's just all cancer awareness. Okay. So So um, yeah. So it is. Inspired from um, uh, from from breast cancer, it was inspired by someone within AutoNation. So the Dry Pink initiatives from uh, AutoNation, it, hugely successful. I think they're approaching $50 million raised to uh, cancer research. Oh, wow. And uh, I think the there was a person within the company that uh, had cancer, and I think it was breast cancer, it might have been brain cancer, and she didn't have the funds to be covered. So there she is, an employee of the company huge uh, company and she's falling short on funds. So there was this initiative that Nation did where uh, there's a benefit that the moment you're diagnosed with cancer, the company cuts you a check for five grand. That's just yours. You just, just, Hey, you've got cancer. Here's $5,000. And then they make sure that whatever program they choose for insurance is comprehensive and, and Covers uh, someone in the event of this because everyone gets touched by it, and so there's an event that happens at uh, the University, uh, uh, the University of Miami Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center. I don't know. Uh, they are the for this event. Every penny that happens at the um, at the the Miami Stadium, what's it called now, Hard Rock Stadium? They have this 5K, and it's the largest NFL fundraiser for. Uh, might be in general uh, for the for the year for a charity, but I think it's the largest one for cancer for the NFL and I try to raise at least 2500 to 3500 personally and it started five years ago when I went uh, when I was at AutoNation. and <laughs> I said hey if I can raise five grand, I'll dress all in pink from head to toe and I did it. I raised money. And so every year they just expect me to look like the mascot for AutoNation. So.
0: (laughs) Yeah. I I see you posting yourself rocking that pink and I'm like, wow, what, what an amazing thing for someone to do. So uh, I I truly admire you for that. So thank you for that. Really. Thank you.
1: Well, it's, it's inspired from Aniela and McGinnis, a friend of both of ours who Mm. uh, you should definitely have on the pod. If you haven't already, I'm going to ask her, I'm going to ask her. Yeah. Get her on there. Her story's great. Uh, but you know, her being one of my best friends and she's part of our cast, but she's got a deep history with, uh, just the funny as well. And, uh, getting cancer, she's doing her one woman show. I don't have cancer on, uh, on your stage down there at JTF. I remember. And, and, uh, she had all of her treatment done at the university of Miami Sylvester Center for comprehensive. I don't know what the name <laughs> of it is, but But uh, they're an incredible organization. I was down there for one of her uh, um, chemo treatments, and she does, like, chemo dance parties. She'd always have a different guest down there, and um, just watching them all care and take care of of her inspired me, and so now I also work with her with uh, Gilda's Club. So um, once a year, we have an event. I dress up as Chris Farley because, you know, Gilda Radner, they do a Mm -hmm. big event, and then, you know,
0: that's it. Wow. Amazing. Amazing. Well, let's start to get to know a little more about you, Casey. Um, Where did you grow up?
1: I grew up in Littleton, Colorado. So I was there till I left for college. Uh, Littleton, most famous, unfortunately, for Columbine. I graduated in 97. That event happened in 99. But my sisters graduated in 2000. So very connected to the uh, to the events there.
0: And uh, what was growing up for you like?
1: It was great. I have really fond memories of uh, playing and uh, having friends and uh, doing basketball and soccer. And then uh, later on, doing some speech uh, competitions in seventh and eighth grade through high school. And, you know, having my entire weekends taken up at just being a nerd and doing, um, uh, they're like comedy, uh, like, funny comedic writings from different authors that you would perform uh in a classroom I don't I look back on it and I'm like what was this art form that I was essentially just ripping off other people's stuff and then performing it on my own but it was the, the thing that I really liked is we did duet acting so we would take two-person clips or two-person scenes which we took to state we won state and um not from a very good play, but because I knew how to cry on the spot and I was good at looking like I was dying. So, um, <laughs> and uh, with a with a woman, uh, Kate Burdick, who I had this huge crush on, um, and she just led me on. It was very much like the Charlie Brown uh, football relationship with it was Lucy, right? Lucy, yeah, is, Lucy, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it was that, and she tortured me. And I just did whatever she wanted me to. But that, but that was growing up for me. High school. Um, so you know, grade school for me. I, I went to a Catholic school from kindergarten to eighth grade. Um, my mom said that one day I would appreciate that experience. I do not. Uh, <laughs> it was, it was brutal. I was, yes. I was treated so poorly by my, by my peers that I flunked all the entrance exams into the private high schools, and that's why I went to public high school. And I uh, went to, went to Calment. awesome school. Great experience, awesome teachers. Um, I had no friends, and so my goal was to try to make a make somebody giggle every day, so that I could end up um, uh, having some friends. And I and I ended up graduating in high school as uh, runner up for class clown to a guy named Chris Buckner, who to this day is a clown. If you go follow his stuff on Facebook, he's just this family guy, and he's funny. And I'm like, man, I'm just never gonna be as funny as Chris Buckner. So. Uh, so that was it, and then we, I packed up shop and I went to the very famous University of Evansville, Indiana, that of course everybody strives to be a part of. You know, so famous, yeah, so well Tre- known,
0: tremendously famous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why do you think? Why do you think that you, you had no friends back then? Uh, that that sounds kind of sad to hear.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't want to touch on it too long. I I, I often ponder on it uh, myself, but I think a lot of it had to do with I was a sensitive kid. I was really small, so I was always the shortest, skinniest kid. So I was easy to pick on. When you picked on me, I reacted and I had a huge temper. And so the temper couldn't do anything because I was always small. So if I did try to physically react to anything you did, it was just funny to those people. So I was just easy to pick on and make fun of. And uh, the teachers didn't really do a great job of protecting me of that because the other problem that I had with my personality is I asked a lot of questions. So in class, I would question all the teachers and being in a religious Catholic school, I questioned a lot of like, you know, the age old question of like, well, if God created everything, who created God? I just, that was a question that I asked all nine years I was in Catholic school and nobody wanted to answer it. Um, except for the priests, the priests were great. So, you know, for all the bad press, the priests get, the priests that were with me at the time that I was an altar server, uh, were great. They'd be like, drinking whiskey, we'd all be counting the money in the back after they'd be smoking cigars. And I would ask questions like, so if God created this, where did, uh, you know, who created God? And I just remember Father Monahan going, who cares? (laughs) (laughs) What a great answer.
0: What a great answer.
1: Yeah. Just who cares?
0: (laughs) But you know, I I gotta tell you, and, and I've mentioned this before. What's What's been blowing my mind in this podcast is the fact that uh, I've been talking to so many people who I've, I'm able to relate to so much in different aspects of their stories. And what you said just a few moments ago about what, about what you went through about being picked on a lot. I had the exact same experience. I was always uh, the fat kid and all through elementary school, I was always the easiest to pick on because like you, I had a really bad temper and All the other kids, all the other boys love teasing me for that. Um, And man, I I, I just still have uh, bad memories to this day about going through all that. I can only imagine that that was a tough thing for you to go through.
1: Yeah, so for for me, I just thought that grade school was a impossibly difficult and painful experience for everybody. But like talking to my wife, that was her best time. And come to find out that high school was actually the worst time for most people as it's a coming of age and switching from adolescence to adulthood. <laughs> for me, it was a real pleasure. Um, it, was, it was a lot of fun because I did get picked on in high school, but for sure, as a freshman and sophomore being picked on by juniors and seniors. But that felt to me more like part of the process hmm. as opposed to being picked on by my peers. It wasn't like as a freshman I was getting picked on by other freshmen it was, you know what I mean? And, um, I don't know, but I'd also painted myself into a corner. The thing is, is there's like, when you're in school with these people for nine years, something you do in first grade lives with you until eighth grade. It just never goes away. Right. So I remember there was this, um, this girl in our class and, uh, I won't say her name, but, uh, she, you know, she had an accident, uh, in first grade. And and people were still bringing it up in seventh and eighth grade. Well, at least I didn't be my pants. And you're like, um, oh, that's brutal. You know, yeah. you're in first grade. <laughs> you're seven. Yeah. You know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, and that's usually a, a make or break moment when it comes to uh, getting peers. You know.
1: <laughs> oh, dude, it was just super brutal. I did this campaign when I was in seventh grade called "Be Yourself," and. I don't know why I did it. I don't, there was no like assignment to it, but I hung up posters and they let me hang up posters in the hallway about being yourself because I got so tired of everyone trying to be like the cool kid. You know, there were a couple of kids or a group of kids and everyone tried to like be like them. And really what it came from, for me is I couldn't, my family couldn't afford the, the shoes because we had, we all had to wear the same uniforms. Right. But on dress down days or dress up days where you could wear something different, everyone came in at Z Cavaricis. Remember those? Oh, yeah. And those were expensive. Like, I remember those even back then. I mean, this is a 30-year-old story at this point. But those things were 100 bucks. And, you know, and I remember telling my mom, I got to have Z Cavaricis. And her going, I'm not spending $110 on something so you have 75 belt loops. You know, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I got one pair of Nike Airs, and they had to last me for a year and a half. And they were a two-year-old model. And, you know, that's how everyone judged each other is what shoes you were wearing or what kind of car your parents drove. Uh, Because that's private school. That's private school life. And my parents really struggled to make ends meet. And not because they couldn't, but because they made the real decision. My dad was self-employed. So he could have a schedule that was flexible to be there for the kids, to coach her basketball, to be there for soccer games, to be there for plays, shows, whatever. And then we, they, I remember them working extremely hard to make it so my mom didn't have to work. And if she did, it was a minimal amount, which meant we didn't have a lot of stuff, but we got a lot of memories. Mm. Yeah. And, and learning now, now that my parents do have money, because my dad... Um, it's very fortunate around 50 where all of his goodwill and all of his relationships that he made over his life finally started to really pay off in droves. And now that I see the two of them with money, they, they would have spoiled the hell out of us. We would have been totally different kids uh, coming out of there. So it's like, if my dad had money, he would have definitely just given us everything and we wouldn't have had to, to work for it. So yeah, you know, shout out to you, dad. If you ever hear this.
0: <laughs> but I love that. You know, I also went through the private school experience um, and, you know, my mom, she worked two jobs, you know, I mean, I didn't come from money either. Um, at one point, my mom would work as a bag lady till like till like closing at, at, at Publix. And, you know, what I love is, you know, like you, I saw these kids in private school and they're driving up in their new Ford Explorers and, and stuff like that. And, you know, I, I think, and I talked about this uh, with, with someone else recently, I think that when you have that lifestyle of, I've got money, I've got everything I need, you kind of lose that sense of needing to be uh, responsible, if you know what I mean. And you kind of lose that sense of really appreciating what you have. And I know that for my mom, she always wanted to make sure that, you know, she that I appreciated everything that I have and... That I understand that she's doing what she's doing, not because I could be rich or wealthy, but just so I could be happy, which I think is something that a lot of people lose nowadays. That sense of this is what you need to be happy, not to be successful or rich or popular.
1: Yeah, I agree. And, uh, and I see it with my kids, you know, my, my wife really wants to give them as much as possible, give them as many experiences as possible. And I don't, I don't disagree Uh, but I do find myself getting frustrated at times when I can hear my kids saying, I can't find the good AirPods, (laughs) 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 the good AirPods. You've got more than one set of AirPods to go hunt down. Okay. Nine year old child. Got it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, when did you become interested in becoming a performer?
1: Very early. Uh, (sighs) As far back as I can remember, so I really enjoyed goofing off and getting attention. And starting seventh grade, doing speech competitions was a big thing for me. So in seventh grade, there was—I uh, can't remember the name of the group, but it's you know, whatever they—they—they they, uh, they had a speech competition. So you write this like inspirational speech as like seventh grader, and then you go perform it. And I loved it, and uh, I lost uh, pretty. Hef, heavily, uh, honestly. And then, uh, and then I started to do speech competitions in seventh grade where, as I mentioned before, you take clips. And I think I did something from, uh, <laughs> it was from lost boys or something. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know. And I did, uh, you know, just a, a speech competition that you would go and compete against others. And I did okay. I don't think I ever won any of those, but I did okay. i was constantly getting second and third and you'd be in these competitions with the same kids week after week. And you'd be hearing the same stuff week after week, but it was fun. And, and it was a way to, to meet people. I didn't necessarily come away with friends that I could call because you'd be meeting with people that lived an hour away or something like this. But it was one of those things that once I was getting ready to go into high school, I said, man, I, I really want to start to get into doing plays and stuff on stage and uh, I remember watching with my dad the British version of Whose Line Is It Anyways, which I, I prefer over the new one. I like the new one, too, but the older one just felt more gritty and honest and uh, less gimmicky. And that may just be because of what I remember, because I can't find it anywhere anymore. The only one that I can find is the, the Wayne Brady episodes, which again are great. And I remember my dad saying, "This is this is comedy. And I remember saying, this is what I want to do. This would be so cool to do. I don't know if I'd be ever be able to ever do it because my dad and I also debated: Is this really improvised? Because it was so good. Yeah, it's like, is this really made up? And of course, of course, uh, it is. So going into high school, I auditioned for for plays. I got into plays, um, and uh, I was listening to the the David Christopher episode. So what's really funny is he talked about, uh, being the lead and, and bye bye birdie. I was a junior, junior, uh, senior in high school. And I, uh, I'd been singing in the choir for a year or so. So at Columbine high school at the time, the head football coach was also the choir director. So it's a 2000 person high school and two thirds of the high school sang in the choir
0: because,
1: uh, the entire football team was essentially forced into singing choir. (laughs) So you've got the guys that are the biggest bullies potentially, and the guys that are the coolest guys that are also singing in choir. So then it became just fine and expected. Everybody just sang in choir. So I was saying as part of a, oh I don't know, like a 150 person choir. Um, Wow. Yeah. It was amazing. So one day, I was in my uh, uh, speech competition class. That was a class. Forensics was the class in high school. And Kay Burdick said, you're going to audition for the musical. No, I'm not. I'm not a singer. She's like, what do you mean you're not a singer? You sing. I was like, yeah, I sing amongst 150 people. (laughs) And you can barely hear my baritone. Like, that's it. Mm. She said, come with me. So we went in. We went with uh, Andres. Andres is playing something on the keyboard. He goes, "Play these, you know, sing back these notes." I sing back the notes. He goes, "Great, that sounds good." I expect you to audition. So I come in and I audition as the dad. Kids, mm. what's the matter? We get these kids today, and I leave, and they're like, "No, you need to come back and audition as Conrad Birdie." Oh, so no way. So I come back. No, you gotta be sincere. right? Mm. that whole thing. They yeah. come in, they give me the they give me the lead, and <laughs> wow. so I'm forced into singing, forced into being part of this musical. I hate musicals at the time. Uh, I still hate that type of musical as well. By the way, uh, you know, because we'd done Fiddler on the Roof the year before. Ugh. You know, just so played out. I'm sure it was great when it was relevant 80 years ago, but uh, it just you know. So there I am. And uh, this inspired me to want to uh, be a theater major, which, um, uh, again, along with the David Christopher story, I only applied to three schools. He applied to two. I only applied to three. University of Colorado, which he did. Yeah. NYU, which he did. Yeah. And then the University of Evansville, which is where I ended up going. Because uh, NYU, they were willing to match what Evansville was going to give me per year. So Evansville was going to give me $12,000 a year in scholarship. NYU was like, we'll do that for you too. Except that made school $6,000 a year at the University of Evansville. (laughs) It made school $42,000 at at NYU. Right.
0: (laughs) Pretty big difference there. Pretty big difference there. A little bit of a gap there. (laughs) <laughs> um, when, you, uh, when you attended uh, college at Evansville, what would you say was the trajectory that you had planned uh, for your life at that point?
1: Yeah, great question. Um, I, I think much the same as most people to become theater majors, I had to come in sideways. So I wasn't accepted as a performance major. I was accepted as a theater management major. So I'd come in, auditioned, And they saw that I wanted to do a dual major in business and in theater. And so they saw it as an opportunity to get a theater management major in place. And I asked them some pretty pointy questions while I was there. Hey, just because I'm a theater management major, does that exclude me from auditioning for shows and getting into the shows and plays? And they said, oh, no, 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 not not a problem. That was a lie. But what they wanted was someone to fill that role of theater management because there were only at the time, I think, three theater management degrees in the country and they took great pride in that. So, um, you know, it was like me and two other people my freshman year that came in. It was a highly exclusive group. Uh a lot of people from around the country auditioned to get in there. Uh amazing program, uh one of uh, one of the best improvisers that are out there right now who's also doing a lot of directing and writing, Lennon Parham. So if you know Lennon like she just directed a couple episodes of Somebody Somewhere. She was in playing house. Like if you saw her face, she's in a lot of stuff where she's associated with UCB stuff because she was a big UCB person. Her and Jess St. Clair are like best friends. They do that podcast, Womp It Up. Uh, you know, Rami Malik went to school with that guy. Uh, uh, you know, winning Best Actor for Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, Jack McBrayer went to our school as well. Uh, Did he really? He actually, yeah, he graduated with a theater management degree as well. So, and had a similar experience. He wasn't in a lot of stuff uh, at school, but he started to do second city during his summers, or maybe it was IO. I can't remember at this point, And then started to pull Lennon in during the summers. And that's how they started to do the, the improv side of things. So uh, Jack graduated in 93. I, my freshman year of college was 97. So I don't have any relationship with Jack necessarily, but just kind of a neat, uh, connection. So a lot of really good, solid, unbelievable working people that are out there. A lot of faces that you would see would be like, I've seen that guy. And uh, so it's, it's fun to be associated with that uh, program. But at the same time, I have a lot of memories of that program um, making me an outsider. And I look back on it and probably a lot of it's my personality where I went from being the superstar in high school to being treated like dirt. And I realize now looking back on it, like that's, Part of the process is you you gotta prove yourself. And I was kind of like, well, I'm here, so I've already proven myself, so give me stuff. And um, so then I um after kind of being beat up, you know, when the head of the department tells you that um you don't have any talent, <laughs> it's hard to think that you're gonna have any opportunities for the remaining three and a half years that you're there. So I started to do stand-up comedy
0: oh, did to you? prove
1: I did. So I started doing stand-up in like ninety-nine. And I did it specifically to say, hey, if I'm successful at this, that's my fault. And if I fail at it, it's my fault. So there can't be anybody that says, oh, you only look good because of, or this happened because of, it's just me. So, um, so I went kind of a different path and a lot of people had to take that path once they were kind of seen as an outsider. So once I had kind of been banished, there was no way for me to come back into it. So. Been doing stand up for 25 years and I'm so good and famous at it. I live in, you know, Boca Raton, Florida.
0: So. <laughs> <laughs> um, what was some of your early stand up material about? I'm curious mm. about
1: that. Oh, yeah. We shouldn't bring that up. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. It was late 90s, early 2000s. So it was, uh, there was uh, probably, if I was to, I don't have any recordings of it anywhere. Thank goodness. Thank goodness the internet was not really bountiful at the time but it was all the stereotypical stuff i was in my early 20s so i had a stereotypical gay character i had uh probably a lot of misogynistic jokes that were just fine at the time um i'm sure that i had uh racist jokes uh i all the things that you see from the late 90s early 2000s like tv shows and they were perfectly acceptable they were mainstream at the time. I I do have some of the material written down and uh, it was awful. It's just, it's just terrible. And so fortunately, so there was a time where I took a a break from it all and had to get like a real job. So I became a banker in between all of this. And uh, so from like 2001 until I started to really get back into it in 2010, luckily i evolved on stuff that i liked and material that works and a lot of time to think about who i was so by the time i found my way back on stage and doing stand-up again in uh, 2010 i did a couple of like little open mics here and there and and met like lisa correo who's a, a really great comedian down here and that uh, i've been fortunate enough to become friends with but you know, I was around when she got her start twenty-some odd years ago, just by dumb luck. I was in a New Faces of Comedy show at the Improv, and, and she was there. And so, uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> I've evolved, and my material now very much reflects where I'm at my life with uh, being married and having kids, and you know, my business partner Tom Neal. He <laughs> he loves to make fun of my stand-up by coming out and saying my stand-up's just never going to be as funny because I don't have kids. And I think that's an an unfair advantage. So he has a whole bit where he does stand-up where he has a fictional child and then he does material based off of his fictional child. (laughs) It's pretty good. (laughs) Pretty good setup.
0: Hilarious. Uh, Let me ask you this, because in those early years of uh, of stand-up, Do you feel like you knew what your voice was back then? Or did it take you time to find it later?
1: It took a lot of time. And it took well into being an improviser for a significant number of years before I knew what my voice was. So to back it up, I started to take classes with um, Gerald Owens with Laughing Gas back in 2001. And because of the nature of his personality, I would leave every single class and I, I would take classes on and off like really heavily. And then I would take a break. It was a long drive. So driving from Boca Raton to Hialeah is about a 45 minute drive. And so I'd get really heavy into it. I'd never go see shows cause he would never advertise the shows, So it was a good opportunity for him on a Tuesday night or a Monday night to say, Hey, by the way, I've a show. You got to come, come check out. The show. I didn't know they did shows. Uh, I just thought he taught these classes and every time I'd leave class, I was like, man, I killed it. I, I love improv. Like, this is so fun. I thought it was a stand up class when I first went down. And then to find out that it's that thing that I've been watching when I was a kid, I was like, oh, and then realizing, oh, this is a really fun thing. So I did that off and on for that, that break where I wasn't doing stand up from like, oh, one to 2010. There was never a time <laughs> that Jerry pulled me aside and said, hey, I, you should maybe audition for the, for the troupe or you should. So I just took classes off and on for like nine years until an email went out. that's ever having open auditions. And of course I, you know, did the audition. There was like 20 people there. I think they picked like three people out of it. And we, you know, (laughs) then I joined laughing gas in 2010, which is where I met and And you know, who's still with us at at sick puppies today. But uh, I just find that so funny that it's like, the lesson that I learned was if somebody's good at this, you need to go out of your way to go tell them you're good and to invite them to come along. You can't just assume that they're going to ask to be a part of it because they don't know how good they are. Right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, by the way, I just checked if you want to see the um, the British version of who's line it's available on Tubi.
1: Oh, awesome.
0: Yeah. I love Tubi. great. Yeah. So you not only can you watch it, but you could stream it for free.
1: I love that. Okay. So I just want to throw that
0: out there. So when you started doing uh, improv with, uh, with laughing gas, um, what were some of the things that you started to learn that maybe surprised you or maybe some, some of the things that you started to learn that really made you realize how great this world is?
1: Jerry has always been big on reminding you that no matter what the gimmick is, no matter what the, because it's, you know, it's all short form there, whatever the gimmick was, you're always in a scene the scene is the most important thing. So if you're playing New Choice or um, if you're playing um, Alphabet, whatever the game is that you're playing, you're in a scene and everything is real and everything matters. And so the moment that I realized that you have to be committed to the emotion in the scene and being committed to your scene partner, all of a sudden the gimmicks heightened whatever it was that you were doing as opposed to letting the gimmick drive the scene so where a lot of people have um it feels like they have a negative connotation of short form improv short form is something that i hold very near and dear to my heart i wish we did more of it but i also understand how it runs this course pretty quickly because after you play certain games a certain number of times you realize that everything kind of always comes to the same point and a lot of times you make shortcuts to get there but um yeah. The, the main thing with Jerry was you're in a scene. It's a real scene and you are committed emotionally to what goes on in that scene. Hmm.
0: I, I remember uh, seeing this interesting transition and, and I'm sure you've seen it too, where in the beginning it was all about short form for uh, mm-hmm. for a lot of people. And then come like 2005 ish, or maybe somewhere around that you start to see the turn of people of people's interest now leaning more towards into long form. Uh, would you agree that now more uh, improvisers tend to lean more towards long form than they do short form, or do you think it's still kind of the same?
1: So, I, I think for the most part, South Florida is all long form. Uh, there's very little short form that's left. I know you guys still do the big show on uh, the one Saturday night a month, and it's and it's heavy. No, now and it's short every form. Saturday. Every Saturday. So every, every Saturday. Saturday. Yep. So it's short form with, uh, you guys always do love machine still? No, we haven't
0: done the love machine in a, in a really long time, actually. Okay.
1: Okay. So as you can tell, it's been a while since I've been down there, you know, when you own and run your own theater, you have little to no time for anything, uh, outside of the, uh, outside of the theater, which is why we're recording this at such an odd time. So, (laughs) um, I think, so what's interesting for me is I was not part of the improv community until 2010. I was going to laughing gas classes, thinking that was it. that was the only thing that was down here and I wasn't looking for anything else i that was that was it if I was looking for anything else, I was looking for stages to do stand up but this improv thing was pretty fun in two thousand and ten I uh joined laughing gas and again i all I know is that I didn't know that anything else um existed and uh there were a couple of people in our cast that would go do stuff somewhere else, but it was never talked about. So it wasn't like, and it was not that it was like hush hush, but it's like, they would talk about, Oh, I did this thing. We're like, Oh, cool. And I never had the want of like, Oh, I want to be a part of that thing. Cause I also didn't have the confidence that I was worthy of doing that thing with them. So I wasn't going to ask. So Yella, I think would pick up sets and, and guest spots at, at JTF pretty often. Um, and uh, for the life of me, I can't remember the other person that would, that would go off and do it with with JTF. Um, but when I was there and, and with uh, Laughing Gas from 2010 to 2012, when they uh, went out of business, that's the moment when I started Sick Puppies. And that summer of 2012, before I started Sick Puppies, there was, from what I understand, so this is really before I'm a part of the, of the community, there were a number of improv companies that were out there and, and a lot of them are gone now. So let's save us some time. We had what's called the meeting of the families. Were you a part of that meeting where we were like the grade school where one of the improvisers taught? Were you at that LD?
0: I was not at that. I heard a lot about it, but I was not there.
1: So it was organized and designed by my business partner, Tom. And there was this rift in the, the at the time where, uh, people were getting tired of wanting to do improv at other places, and it f- and I have no idea. I wasn't a part of it, I had not even started Sick Puppies at the time, and I didn't have a home at the time, so I was also kind of there like, Who else can I meet and just join up with? Right, and, but there was this thing, there was this stigma or connotation out there that if you're with this group, you can't play with any other group, and if you go play with that other group, they're gonna ban you at your current group, and it was this very um silo based improv at the time and so one of the reasons tom had put the meeting together was just to kind of get an agreement from everybody that hey we're all one big family we're trying to lift everyone together and i took it as my opportunity to come in so i'd also known todd rice at the time todd was part of laughing gas but todd also has they improv and todd a huge integral part of me growing my own business has paid all of us at one time or another. I'm sure you've done a Todd Rice gig, right, LD?
0: I've done a gig with Todd,
1: yeah. So we've all done paid gigs with Todd Rice. Todd Rice is someone that has made a profitable improv company, and he pays improvisers. That's a big deal. And uh, so Todd was at this meeting, well, at this meeting. So I asked the question because I'd had the idea, hey, I'm going to start this improv company and I'm going to hold auditions. Does anyone have a problem with me inviting people in your groups to participate in my thing? And of course everyone's face to face at that time. (laughs) And so everyone's like, sure, that's not a problem. So I was like, great. The majority of the people that started with us were just old laughing gas people. So it's not like I was plucking anyone from everyone else, but I remember Tom grabbing me and being like, dude, where you're having auditions is like six minutes from my house. It would be really stupid of me not to participate in this. So, we uh, hold the audition, 13 people come <laughs> in 2012, and guess what? All 13 join the cast. Because I knew 12 of the 13 people, there was one person I didn't know. Her name was Stephon Duncan, and she just had a killer audition. She'd never done improv before, but she had done like stuff at FAU mm-hmm. and just wildly charismatic. You know Stephon, right, L.D.? Do you remember Stephon? Have you ever met her?
0: You know what? If I saw her face, maybe I will remember I tend to be better with faces than I am with names.
1: Okay. If you saw her, you would know. Her. I mean, she was, um, big in the scene up in, you know, the Palm beach area between sick puppies. And then later on with Anthony Francis's, um, uh, improv you and, and doing stuff with Kat Kenny. So she, you know, she worked amongst those groups and she's just, she's a great actor, super talented, beautiful voice. So we have our, we have our group and, um, after having the group for about two months, and so this is where we're, I'm going to answer your question about long form, okay? I just start doing laughing gas shows because I love doing those shows. We're doing short form improv, and I'm doing the mating game, and I'm doing all the stuff that I love to do. And Tom calls me, and he says, hey, man, uh, and I thought he was quitting. I could just tell by his tone that I thought he was just quitting the troupe and ready to leave. he called me and he said, hey, man, uh, you kind of have like a Ferrari's worth of talent that's with you and you're kind of driving it like a Pinto. (laughs) That's a great analogy, (laughs) such a great analogy. And so it's at one point saying, Hey, everyone we're working with is incredible. And I was like, and I was just waiting for him to be like, and I'm out. And he said, and I kind of want to like show you some stuff that's possible. So he sends me three links uh, to YouTube. Uh one's a Rosowski thing. Uh one is uh Middle Age Comeback. And uh, for the life of me, I can't remember the the I think it's also another Rosowski thing. So I think he sent me a Rosowski with Clifford, Rosowski with um someone else like something in a chicken coop, and then Middle Age Comeback. Now Middle Age Comeback was the thing that sent me through the roof because uh the particular piece that he sent to me was a uh, sleepover and it was just two-man improv that happened up in Chicago. I don't know which of the stage, probably IO. And they play multiple characters. It's long form. There's no game. There's no gimmick. And I turn that off and I message. I probably called Tom at the time because it's 2012. And I said, hey, dude, I'm I'm all in. Like, I didn't know this was possible. I did not know that this was possible. I didn't know this was a thing. Would you like to run rehearsals for like two months? I'll just give the cast to you and introduce us to long form. And he said, sure. So Tom introduces us to long form improv. And we're loving it. And we're having a really good time. Now, you'll help me out with this because I don't think I've ever asked this question. LD, when did you down at JTF start to run exclusively long form shows? When did you start to do that?
0: I'm going to say, well, a big part of that was because of the Miami Improv Festival that we were doing. And that obviously became like a big eye-opening experience for everyone because like you and and with your group, we started to realize, oh, there's actually more that we can do here. So, I'm going to say between 2004 2005
1: around that time. Okay. So here we are, 2012. He's opened our eyes up to this, and I go, great, we're doing long form shows. <laughs> and Don <Tom laughs> says, well, no one's going to sign up for that. Nobody wants to come see a long. No one's going to know what that is. It's like I was like, well, what's the point of teaching it? If we can't put it on stage. So what we started to do is we started to do hybrid shows. So we would do, you know, maybe a 12 minute piece followed by some kind of a short form thing. And then we would do like a 12 minute piece followed by some kind of a short form thing to eventually we did this show, which I thought was pivotal, pivotal, pivotal for us, where in May of 2013, we did a show called prom and everybody dressed as though they were going to prom. Oh, wow. And we invited all the guests to show up. A sold-out crowd, 125 people in the audience. And a lot of them dressed up for prom. So it looked like we were having prom. And so the first half of the show were scenes that were based off of things that were happening. So instead of doing carpool, we did limo. And so it's just all these kids going. And Tom's the limo driver. There's a great picture of him putting the car putting the limo into a wheelie. So he's the driver and he looks <laughs> like a madman and having Alana Isaacson and in McGinnis, Anthony Francis, Julie Cotton, uh, Stefan Duncan, Tamara Jones, everyone's dressed to the nines for this. I know I'm missing people from, from that, from that night. Fawad Siddiqui um, and we're all just, it's different than anything anyone's ever done before because it's a thematic improv show. And we're trying to hold to it still being improv, but it's still living within the case of its prom. So every scene that we did was, oh, there's been a murder outside of the school after prom. (laughs) And then, you know, doing the uh, deconstruction that leads back up to the murder scene. Uh, You know, just uh, uh, we did mating game where uh, people found their way in their, their, that made their dates for the prom. For the second half of the show, we took off all of our prom gear because instead of having a band at prom, we had an improv troupe. And so we (laughs) were (laughs) just... I just
0: love that idea. Instead of the prom, (laughs) instead of the band, here's an improv troupe, kids.
1: (laughs) Could you imagine a worse prom? (laughs) a bunch of horny kids that want to feel each other up in the dark and there's someone going, all right guys, can I get a, can I get a word? I I just love that idea so much. (laughs) So we come out and now we're doing, you know, a true 30 or 45 minute improv show. And now it's true because it could be anywhere at any time, but for the first 30 or 45 minutes of the show, we're doing prom thematic based things. And at the end, We turn on – We she had a disco light in her space, Mm. uh, the theater owner at the time. So we turn on the disco light. We turn the lights down. Everyone spread their chairs out, and we danced to light. We did, like, two slow person dances at the end of the show, and everyone's just dancing with everybody. It was, like, such an eye-opener for us that you can do anything that you want and that you can – you don't have to conform to these ideas of what traditional – improv or theater or comedy is you just do whatever you want and that was started by tom saying hey let's do this thing to me saying yeah that's all i want to do i just want to do that uh so we were super late to the game as far as long form went but almost overnight from that show we flipped from being short form to long form and you know you wouldn't recognize if you were to put us up you know us today in 2023 to what we were back in you know 2012 two two different two different groups but i think the culture is still the same
0: i agree i agree yeah i definitely think you know, if you, when you start doing nothing but short form, short form, you could be very hesitant to go into long form until you actually see what it can be. Cause that's the exact experience that I had. And, you know, back then when I first started at JTF, it was only short form as well. But then when they started integrating long form, I was like really hesitant. I studied acting. So, you know, I was used to doing like you know, scenes and stuff like that. But for some reason I had this like very like, like horse blinders. Like, I just want to make people laugh. I just want to make people laugh. And then it wasn't until I saw, and I've shared this story many times, but I I love sharing this. It wasn't until I saw Stacey Halal and Mark Sutton do their duo show. And that totally changed me. And it's like, I want to do more of that stuff. And so I think long form is one of those things where once you really jump into it and really see what it could be. It changes you because you realize there's a lot more here than just making people laugh. And you realize that improv is not even about making people laugh. It's about creating these experiences that people remember. Would you agree with that?
1: Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I, I constantly teach to the students that um, as long as your audience is engaged, you're doing your job. Mm -hmm. just so happens that the way we teach improv leads to humor because the very basic philosophy of care so much about something so, so insignificant is going to make people laugh Uh, because when you watch someone lose their shit, because they're standing in line at a 10 item line and somebody ahead of them has 12 items and they're starting to lose their mind and you're not one of the two parties that are involved. That's comedy to you. It's comedy to you, too, because you've also been one of the person, one of the people that's been in line with 12 items, and you've also been one of the people standing behind the person 12 items losing your mind. Whether it be inwardly or outwardly, you're sitting there going, give me 12, you can't even count. I got stuff to do, what do you do, you know? And when you're the person behind the people, you're watching a show. And so all I'm asking people to do is care a lot about something insignificant. This is another lesson taught to us by Jerry. And if you end up caring a lot about something that's very significant, that's also engaging. So now you're just doing dramatic improv and that's fine. You can drive and you can, you can uh, captain that ship as long as you want to. It just so happens that we end up caring a lot about the insignificant crap. And it's easier to do And that's why we end up driving the laughter. And audiences connect with it because as humans, all we do is care a lot about insignificant shit all day. We hold so many stupid things as precious. And when somebody serves it up as not precious, and it doesn't need to be precious, then we get to laugh. And that's why the people sit in the dark so that uh, nobody can call out who's laughing at what. And they call to us that are in the lights to make all the the weird decisions and the big choices and to be the vulnerable ones. People pay for that because they don't that particular night they don't want to be that uh I like to be an audience member too, so I can just sit in the dark and feel feelings and watch people fuck up and and uh you know so that I can go, oh, I'm glad that's not me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you pay that's what you pay the money for so I love to be the vulnerable one, but I also love to to sit in the dark with the with the other group of people and 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 be a, uh, a voyeur, if you will, and just oh, mm, oh what are they doing? Okay, yeah. ooh, that looked bad. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think it's totally like being a, a voyeur. You know, I mean, when you're an audience member, you are being a voyeur. You're seeing, you know, something that maybe you shouldn't be watching.
1: <laughs> it's true, and when you see the great stuff, I there was a time where I used to get jealous and I'd be like, Oh, I can never be like that. You know, I can't, uh, they're, they're just doing something that I'll never be able to do, but I'm now old enough and far enough along in my career where I know exactly what I'm capable of. And I know what skills I could choose to build on if I wanted to, but I continue to build on the skills that I choose to build on. So when I see really, unbelievable work I can appreciate it for what it is and be thankful that that exists so I don't have to produce that like that already exists I'll keep producing my stuff but early on watching someone belt out you know an unbelievable piece of music and I'm like I'm a good singer but not that and I and also I'm saying a lot by saying I'm a good singer like I'm I can sing. I have the ability <laughs> to sing, right? <laughs> so when I see someone actually use their vocal cords as a, as an instrument, I used to get really jealous. And I'm like, well, I could I could take singing lessons. I could hire a coach, but clearly, it's not as important to me as being better with my scene work and getting with my team and and finding the you know the the thing that makes us makes us drive.
0: You know, one word that I definitely use to associate with you a lot is the word hustle because I see you put so much hustle into everything you do, especially in those early years of, uh, of sick puppies. Like I remember hearing stories about how you just be walking down the street and you would stop people and say, Hey, you want to go see an improv show? Great. I'll, I'll give you a ticket right now. You know, where does that hustle and drive come from for you?
1: Well, thanks LD. Yeah. I, uh, I was just thinking of, uh, Tom and I've been talking about this recently, but, uh, I've always, I think, been a hustler from the from the very beginning. So um, I was 10 years old. And uh, remember when you used to have to sell like chocolate or magazine subscriptions as fundraisers for your school? I remember those. Yeah. So I always looked at the prizes like, hey, if you sell X amount of these, you get this prize. And one year it was getting a telephone and my parents would never let me have a telephone in my room for a hundred reasons. I was 10 years old and they, you know, they just wanted back in the day we had the corded phone. So my mom could hear what I was saying to people. Right. And if, and if I was being shitty or not, and I just wanted a phone in my room, a, I was girl crazy, fourth grade, I've been girl crazy forever. And so I just, yeah, I want to call girls and, you know, all that kind of stuff <laughs> and totally inappropriate, totally understand why my parents never want me to have a phone in my room. So, looking at this magazine award thing, the the thing said you need, we'll just call it a billion points, right? So it was like, get a hundred points, get some candy, get 150 points, get like a book, 200 points, you can get this little bouncy ball, 300 points, get a hacky sack, a billion points, you get the phone. So my parents look at this, they see how unreasonable it is. And they said, hey, if you sell enough magazine subscriptions to get the phone, you can have a phone in your room. <laughs> Okay. (laughs) So I'm working towards something that doesn't have any monetary value, but it has all of the emotional value. I mean, this is climbing Everest as a 10-year-old. So I was on a mission to get this phone and I knew who I was. I knew what my character was. I knew that I'm a 10-year-old kid and I knew that nobody wanted to buy magazine subscriptions and I knew that my cuteness would only get so far. Because everyone was banging on doors back in the day. It's not like it is today. There's no one knocking on today's doors. It just doesn't exist anymore. But back then, yeah, they don't open the door. You know, because if a kid's selling a candy bar, yeah, I'll buy one of your candy bars or whatever. Magazine subscriptions, like I said, 12 bucks a pop. So the deal I made was I'd go knock on doors and I would say, hey, if you buy two magazine subscriptions, I'll cut your yard for free. And the going rate was like 10 bucks, And they love that. They love that entrepreneurship. So... People would just buy magazine subscriptions from this cute kid that's hustling. Then they would pay me like 12 bucks to cut their yard. Even though I said I would do it for free, I would take that $12 and I created a bank of money so that when I was done with this, I gave my dad, it had to be, uh, it had to be like two or $300 from all the yards wow. like that, because I needed him to cut me a check for all these magazine subscriptions and he's like, where are you getting this money from? I said, dude, I'm, I'm cutting yards as part of the deal for magazine subscriptions. And I could see it in my dad's eyes that he was beat. You know what I mean? Like the only thing stopping me from getting this phone is my dad's ability to cut me a check. And I had already researched that I could have gone to a grocery store and gotten a, and gotten a money order to order those uh, magazines. I wanted to show my dad right then and there, brother, I'm using my own money to get this phone. So keep in mind, I'm hustling door to door. And of course it's a it's a neighborhood. So everyone's talking to everyone. So now they're talking to my mom. Oh my God, Casey's so cute. He's doing this thing. And now my mom's talking to other people. Oh God, we would love to buy magazine subscriptions. I had people buying four, five magazine subscription at a, at a, at a time. I can't tell you how many I sold, but I not only got enough for the phone, but I surpassed and hit another tier where I could end up getting a limo to pick me up at school and take me out to Olive Garden, which, of course, LD. (laughs) Are, Are you kidding me? Olive Garden? So they took me and three other kids in the state of Colorado to Olive Garden, and I got the phone, and the phone was a piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> it was, it was. I can't even explain it to you, but it didn't, it didn't. It, so of course it was corded and, and, and connected into the wall, but the cord in the wall was also the cord for the phone. So there was just an on and off switch
0: oh, on, the, no. on the
1: piece itself. And it, and it was like this, you know, it was the shape of like just a, Bar and it dialed in rotary. What? So it had numbers on it, but you could hear it go all that work for a piece of shit phone. But it was actually an invaluable phone because it was such a piece of shit. That on the the microphone that you would speak into, I remember going to sleep one night. And by the way, there was nowhere to hang it up, so I had to put a pin in the wall, and it had a little like hook at the top of it, and I would just hang it on my wall on a pin. Like that was it. <laughs> it was such a piece of such a piece of shit. And, and and to me, it was the most valuable thing that I ever had because I could make outbound phone calls and and the whole nine yards. And and of course, like a year later, I went to uh, you know target and got like a real phone because at that point (laughs) I've got a phone in my room and whatever. Yeah. And I'd also, by the way, picked up all these, um, I, that, I, that I'd also started a landscaping business as a result of the magazine thing. So now I had five or six yards is an 11 year old making, you know, so this is 1990, 1991. And I'm making, I don't know, like $250 a week as an 11. wow! So building that up, going on vacation, having my friends step in and cut yards when I'm on vacation, being able to pay my friends, you know, and I didn't understand keeping a piece for myself. So like when I was gone, my friend would make $250 a week. <laughs> right. And so um, there was that hustle. And then I liked uh, generating income. So I got a paper route when I was 12. So now I'm cutting yards. And then I also created a agreement with um, the people that I cut their yards that, Hey, when it snowed, if it snowed X amount, it seemed like it should be shoveled. I'd be up at 5. AM shoveling all their driveways. So during the winter I would shovel and I'd make more shoveling than I would cutting yards. I would charge $15 to shovel 12 to cut a yard. By the time I left for college, I was charging 20 bucks to cut and, I was working at Domino's Pizza and uh, I'd given up the paper out. Those sucked, man. I had two paper routes as like a 13, 14-year-old riding my bike. Um, crazy. But I did pick up cool skills where I could ride my bike without uh, using hands and then throw the throw the papers. <laughs> so I always had a, a, a hustle. And in college, my advisor was trying to list things on eBay, right as eBay had gotten its start. And he had a bunch of old Warner Brothers, like figurines and stuff like this that he wanted to sell. And I realized very quickly that the listings were ugly because eBay didn't do anything to make your listings look good. It was just a marketplace. It was kind of like right. Craigslist, really. And so, but it would accept HTML. So I taught myself HTML and provided him a template. And I said, hey, everything in red, just fill in with your description. uh, And then give me your, and I have to, he would take a picture, develop the pictures, give me the pictures. I would go to the lab in college, scan the pictures, and then I'd have to host them on a different server because eBay didn't host images at the time. So then I'd have to point to the images and list them in the whole nine yards. And I would take 25% of whatever he made on those. Hmm. Then I learned when the PlayStation came out, PlayStation 2, that when I was on eBay, people were listing the PlayStation spelled incorrectly. And nobody was getting bids. So what I would do is I would bid on the PlayStation for whatever the amount was. And then I would immediately list it somewhere on eBay again, listed correctly, spelled correctly, because search engines weren't that smart back then. Right, And then I would make an extra $100, 200 300 400 on those PlayStations. So by the time the listing ended that I had bid on and I sent the check, I would give the address of whoever won my bid. And so I never had wow. to see the PlayStation. It would just get shipped to that other person. Uh, and so I made money doing that because I was also working at Circuit City in college at the time. And we would raid... The truck as soon as it came. <laughs> it was just sometimes it was, I mean, it was sometimes fist fights. I was never in the fist fights, but I'd watch people knocking the shit out of each other to get the PlayStation because they knew that they'd get it at cost. They'd have it at employee cost, which was not much. Right. it's like a $20 discount or whatever. Because um, we didn't make any money on the PlayStations at the store. You'd make all the money on the games. And then they would sell those online. So there's always been a hustle. There's always been a way for me to generate income. And so by the time it came to uh, running my own improv company, I knew that I had to promote it. And after being in sales, selling mortgages, selling loans, selling cars, uh, selling myself um, that I was able to apply all of that hustle into this improv company because one of the things that I've just loved to overcome is every time somebody says you can't do something. That's my favorite thing. So when I started the improv company in 2012, I remember people being improv and Boca Raton. That's never going to work. You know, you've got JTF down in Miami. That's Miami for whatever reason, as though Miami is, is, is got any less people that want to, or more people that want to spend money. And when we first started, I think our first improv show that we had, had like, 30 or 40 people in it. And I was really impressed with it, but it was that that new energy. So like everyone in the cast had that new energy and we promoted the hell out of it. Week 2, we had two people. Really? Yeah. And I realized very quickly that we're in a bad spot. So I had a website. I didn't have a way for you to buy tickets online. So this is really before Eventbrite, this is before Square had an online uh, ability. And I knew that I had to very quickly find a way to get people into shows. And we really struggled week after week after week. And I got some really good advice from Fawad, Fawad Siddiqui, who was there from the beginning and helped me stand up the company and run the auditions and help me understand what we were looking for. And he said, I think what you should do is stop doing weekly shows. I think you should start to make them thematic. And I think you should run them once a month. And I think you should attack them as a group to fill that one show a month and just make it really kick ass. And that really changed everything for us. I mean, there's a lot of pivotal moments in sick puppies, but that was a big one. So we shut everything down. We kept practicing, but we shut everything down and we didn't do shows in December or January. And so we started to market everything to Valentine's day and we did a Valentine's show. We knew that was going to be a win because couples want to go find stuff to do. We had two months to promote it. I spent money on flyers. So I don't remember who designed them. It could have been, uh, Anthony's wife, Marissa. I don't remember. Uh, so I apologize if you designed it and I messed that up. So I spent like 250 bucks on flyers. I, um, uh, signed up with square And so even though you couldn't transact online, our phone number was on our website. People would call and I would hard sell them over the phone. Then I gave access to everybody in the cast, the ability to sell through Square as a user on their app. And so Mm. what we did was we started to say, because we started to take advantage of all the times and all the years that I've had to promote shows and promote myself where somebody says, Oh, I gotta check you out sometime. How many times have you heard that? Or oh dude, we're totally coming. I said, Hey, when somebody says that to you, say, Great, how many tickets do you want? I'll sell you some right now. They go, uh yeah. They're fifteen dollars for one, twenty dollars for two. What would you like? And now we started to get ticket sales rolling in. And you had people that were being pressured into coming to our shows. So every time, <laughs> you know, I was working full time at, at AutoNation at the time. but Oh, we got to check it out. Great. How many tickets do you want? I'll sell them to you right now. You can hand me cash. You can give me a check. Uh, anytime I get a phone call. And you're right. I would see people on the street and I would stop and I'd say, hey, did you know that there's improv that's happening over here? And they're like, what's improv? And I was like, it doesn't matter. How many tickets do you want? <laughs> I'm running a special right now, $20 for two, as though they had any idea what the regular price of a ticket was. <laughs> so I'd get their contact information, and then I knew that I had to add them to some kind of a marketing thing, so I started to add them into MailChimp. Now, i got to tell you, for all the years I've used MailChimp, and I just uh, finally quit them, uh, I never, I never got any business from MailChimp. Our segment is so small of people – that it just never picked up. It was just the scale was never too big to, to, but it was $25 a month. So I, I let it ride for as long as possible. Now Eventbrite runs their own email marketing campaigns and they have all my data. So, and it's free. So I just, I just run everything through Eventbrite. I think you guys down there still use TicketWeb, which is part of uh, Ticketmaster. So you guys got in on that, on that gravy train early because I was not able to get into that. So, um, We, I had scripts that I gave to everybody in the cast. So you could text your friends and the text message that would go out would say, Hey LD, I was just going through my phone, seeing who I could invite to my upcoming improv show. And your name came up and we haven't talked in a while. I hope things are well with you. Uh, Take care. That was it. Then you would respond. Things are going great. I hope you're doing well dude, I'm doing great. Uh, this improv company is keeping me so busy. Notice that I haven't asked for the sale, right? If you never asked or inquired to buy tickets, I just rekindled a friendship because it's a genuine dude. I hope you're good. How's your wife? What have you been up to? How's work? We got to get together for coffee, you know, whatever. But more often than not, you would be like, well, tell me about the show. Oh yeah, dude, it's Friday. It's at this time. Uh, Oh, cool. Yeah, maybe I should go up there. Yeah, the tickets are only 20 bucks. If you want, I can sell you some. I can give you a call. So you're asking me for the sale and I don't feel like I'm shamelessly plugging anything and I'm genuinely coming from a place of, oh, dude, I like legitimately going through going, yeah, of course, I got to invite Brian. And for the people that I talk to on a regular basis, I'm going, dude, come to my show. It's not, I hope things are good and blah blah, 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 blah. It's come to my show. But if it's someone I haven't talked to in a long time, they don't need to get blasted with, uh, you know, someone I haven't talked to in seven years with a, hey, man, uh, come to my show. That just feels like a blanket text. I'm legitimately going, oh, yeah. man, I haven't talked to David in a long time. Dude, I hope you're good. I was going through my phone promoting my show, and they're going, you do improv now or you do shows or you do comedy? And It's like, yeah, check it out. So that's the, the hustle. Every phone call that I got was an opportunity to close. People looking to take a class. Uh, my heart and soul went into every single one of those phone calls. And my goal was to transact with your credit card over the phone because I had so much confidence that once you experienced what it is that we do, you would not be let down. And I was able to prove that point over and over and over and over. And we do that to this day, uh, 11, 12 years later, that every time somebody calls, my goal is to get you to come in. Now we've changed because we are more successful now. We have more business We've got a little bit more of a pipeline, so I don't have to convince people that I know probably won't like what we do like I used to. Um, So, you know, for example, (laughs) there's a there's a senior citizen uh, place that wanted to do an outing. And they called me and they said, hey, we're looking for some comedy. And I said, great. Tell me what you're looking to do. Blah, 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 blah. Come to find out they are in their 70s and 80s. Oh, boy. And I said, hey, I'm all about this. I love it. But have any of these people ever seen an improv show? Because if they haven't, it's very jarring. It's very different from anything that they've seen. And what I've generally found with that population is they like to see things that are more familiar to them, things that they can relate to. And we're going to be pulling out pop culture references. We don't have costumes. We don't have props. It's not scripted. There's no fiddler. There's no roof. Like we've got to, and, and so I felt like I'm in a new phase of my life now where I can have honest conversations with people that are looking to transact with us. Whereas before I'd be like, bring the bus, dude, they're going to love it. (laughs) <laughs> bring that bus and then just deal with a 90 minute show of people going i don't understand what he's saying what is it speak up i don't i don't get it i don't get it marge and then the people that fall asleep in the middle of it the people that just get up and wander around and uh you know like so we stop doing gigs out there too so we 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 start to ask more questions before people come into us and say hey what is it that you're looking for and for years, the people that were, would call me and say, I'm looking for a stand-up comedy class. And I'd be like, oh, yeah, this class will supplement that perfectly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, how many times do you hear about people joining an improv class thinking that it's stand-up? I mean, it know? still
1: happens, and I still do everything that yeah. I can to prevent it. Uh, but back <laughs> in the day, I used to be a lot more um, loose with my descriptions online. Take a comedy Mm. class. Learn about comedy. Learn about how to make things up on the spot. Uh, Learn how to make you better at writing comedy. You know, all the things that you learn from improv because I was too afraid of listing improv for what it was. And now realizing years later that I wasn't capturing any of those people. I am capturing people that are specifically looking for improv. So now... I've really focused my marketing to where this is improv. This is what improv does. This is what improv is for. This is what you can get out of the improv class. Specifically, this is it. And we drive just as much traffic as we always have. But now we capture and keep more of those people because I'm not sitting there trying to convince three of the 12 people in my class that it's okay. It's still fun. you know. So that now there's like maybe one person every six months that comes in. And I just recently had a guy that was super kind and super nice. His wife had purchased the class for him and said, Honey, I bought you a stand up class. <laughs> <laughs> so he comes in, and we're, I love doing silly warm ups because uh, it takes everyone out of their comfort zone. So we're doing the eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, right, right. And dude, he's just standing there looking at this group of idiots, you know, just you morons, what are you doing? And And it's not from a place of like, um like he's not too cool for school he's literally just like shell-shocked that's what's going on you know we're playing patterns apple orange pear banana you know <laughs> it's like... so he comes up to me when we're on a slight break he says hey uh i don't i don't think this is for me um do you have a stand-up class i said yeah i do He said, "Uh, can I apply my tuition to that stand-up comedy class? I said, yeah, it's it's more expensive because it's kind of a one-and-done thing. He goes, anything to not keep doing this would be great. (laughs) 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 He was such a sweet guy. Now, I did get a phone call from his wife a couple days later that was like, hey, can we just get a refund? I was like, totally. (laughs) Here's your money.
0: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is, by the way, another- he wanted out from the very beginning.
1: He wanted out from the beginning, and then once he saw that stand up was a five hundred dollars class as opposed to improv, which is a three hundred dollars class, uh, he was going. I no, I am not. You know, Casey's a nice guy or whatever, but this is not from. I can't do kumbaya up in this joint. So, right, yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is kind of a good transition to this question. Uh, what has your experience been like teaching improv to students?
1: Yeah, I, I've got to say there's like three things in the world that I love to do more than, more than anything else in the professional light of things, right? Because I'm obliged to say that being a parent is the number one thing. Uh, so the top three things. Number one, I love being in front of a camera. If all I could do is get paid to be in front of a camera for the rest of my life, that's all I would do. I would stop improv. I would stop the improv school. I just I love it very much. I have a lot of joy and doing that. And, uh, and it saddens me that I haven't been able to do it in a long time. The number two thing is performing improv, uh, with my cast of sick puppies. They're the best people in the whole world. And the culture that we have amongst those people, it's, it's these deep friendships and this rapport that's unlike any other. And, and, you know, LD, you have the same thing that you've had for the last 20 years that you've been a part of that, uh, community, you know, which, which I love dearly. You know, I always, considered just the funny to be kind of my, my sister home, if you will. I know that if I walk in the doors and I come up the stairs, it's big open hugs and what can we do and how can we serve? And, um, you know, and I, I hope you find that. Uh, I hope everybody at, at, at JTF finds that, you know, at, at our place.
0: 100% uh, my friend. So,
1: you know, so much, so much love for YLD, but um, teaching is the third thing and it's, such a close third to performing improv on stage a the moment you start to teach you realize it makes you a better improviser because you're saying here are all the things that you should be doing here are the things that make for a successful scene and you realize the next time you get up to improvise after you've taught a class you're not doing any of the things you've been teaching right yeah (laughs) I've, i've been there i've definitely had that experience i'm still there you know cuz i'm mm. i i'm a i was a stand up first i was a one man show first and so and then Jerry taught did an amazing job of teaching us how to actually put on a show host a show call a show it's a show it's a good time and so i know with stage presence on stage i'm bigger than life and then i'm teaching all my students it's about the other person and then i catch myself at the next show just Steamrolling whoever I'm on stage with and going, Oh, okay, I've got to make some adjustments. So, for the last mm-hmm. 10 or 11 years that we've had this school, it's that, and then it's that coupled with showing people what they're capable of. That most of these people are taking a leap, they're doing this for not necessarily to become an improviser, but They're doing it because they're shy. They're trying to come out of their shell. They are business professionals and they think that improv would help them be better in their business skills. Very rarely do we get someone in Delray beach uh, that is, you know, trying to join and become a professional actor. If they were, they might be living in Miami, but the Miami scene for becoming a professional actor really doesn't exist anymore. So, you know, it's not Atlanta, it's not Chicago, it's not New York, it's not LA. And These people are looking to just become better versions of of themselves. And the number of transformations that I've seen in students who either become performers in our cast that we've built almost our entire cast from our classes. We don't hold open auditions. Uh, We did one and I felt really icky because the only people we picked to join the cast were people that took our classes and it felt really icky. Because when I called the other people to tell them, hey, you didn't make the cast. Because one of the promises I made every, to everyone on the audition was, I'll call you and if you want feedback, I'll provide it to you. And mm-hmm. then, of course, at the end of the calls with the people that didn't make the cast, I'd say, they'd say, well, how can I get better? I was like, well, you could, you know, take a class. Ugh. Right? Now it felt like I bait and switched you. I brought you into audition so I could just tell you to sign up for our classes. And because there isn't anything else around us, we're the only option. You either have to go all the way up to West Palm Beach to take stuff with Kat Kenny, which is freaking amazing. I recommend you go do it. I know you've had her on your pod. I can't wait to listen to that episode. Or you got to go all the way down to Just the Funny. That's it. Yeah. Nobody else is teaching classes. So, we're it. So yeah, you live in Boca. You didn't make the cast. Uh, go take the class. <laughs> <laughs> Give me your money. I didn't. I never wanted to be, as a marketer. I don't mind being called a hustler. I don't mind being called a profiteer. Like any of that stuff is fine. I just don't want people to think that I'm um, a grimy salesman. I don't want anyone to ever think that I've manipulated you into doing something you didn't want to do. Uh,
0: Yeah, You don't want to seem like a scam artist basically. Yeah.
1: So even when I'm selling you on shows and I'm closing you, I just know our shows are good and I know that our classes are good. So I know that I'm selling you on it and I've gotten you at a moment where I can, get your money. But I I could probably count between two hands over the last 10 years, the number of times I've had to provide a refund to somebody. You know, Maybe I provided 10, maybe 15 total refunds total between all of our shows and all of our classes over the last 10, 11 years. And I take a lot of pride in that. So uh, teaching, I've watched people realize that they're so much bigger than they than they really thought they were, and I've watched people end relationships while in the middle of our class. I've watched people really? pick up relationships while in the middle of our class. I've watched people switch careers. Uh, we had—I um, love the story of uh, mei Lie, who was one of our um, one of our students. She was lovely. She was just she's a beautiful person, super intelligent. She was an attorney, and she was working for. Um, uh, and I apologize, but she was working for one like the National Enquirer. I don't know which one, but it was one of those like crappy, you know, uh, things. And her job was basically to make sure that the stuff that was being published and printed couldn't get the National Enquirer sued. So it was kind of oh, icky, wow. right? Kind of icky. Yeah, yeah. And so she was very good at it. And she called me one day and she said, I have really bad news. And I was on set. So I was having a really good time on set. And I was like, oh, I don't want to be bummed out. And she said, I'm moving to uh, Washington. And I said, oh, that does suck. I'm really sad. She goes, but it's for a really good reason. What I've learned here at Sick Puppies is that I'm capable of so much more. So I put myself out there and Netflix is hiring me to be their attorney to do what I'm doing over at the National Enquirer or whatever the publication was but she was basically making sure that anything that Netflix was about to publish or, you know, put on their, their site wasn't owned by somebody else. Like that someone couldn't come out and pursue them for rights or something along those lines. And so she went from using her powers for arguably for bad to good. And I just remember, you know, this is probably 2015, when I had really taken uh, to sick puppies and it became my full-time job. And she, and I was like, Oh, I didn't, I didn't know that this is where we're at. I didn't know that we've transformed people. We're just talking about this other guy that moved up to Chicago. And when he started with us, he was this 300 pounds, super depressed, tall guy, didn't have any friends and uh, was suicidal. And he left in 2016 and said, the only thing that kept me alive was knowing that there's a group of people that wanted to see me every week and play with me every week. And in that time, he lost 100 pounds. Uh, he had uh, found love. Um, and the, the the darkness started to fall away from him. And he got enough confidence to say, I think I want to try doing this kind of stuff up in Chicago. And he did. And he moved up there. So, um Wow. And I know you've seen stories like that where you're at, where improv activates something in people where you do a very scary thing and you realize, well, if I can do this, then I can probably do this. And because I did this, I can do this. And because I did this, I can do this. And it's the, and it's the catalyst to end things in your life that are toxic and to also start things in your life because you're not afraid to do them anymore.
0: Yeah, there is so much that students take away that sometimes we as teachers don't even realize. Um, I, I love seeing that growth. One story that I have that I always keep in my heart is I had this um, this one girl in our class. Uh, her name was uh, was uh, Susanna, and you know, week one you could tell that she was super shy, but week after week you see her start to open up more. She's getting more confident, and her scenes were great. Then cut to. Week seven, she's doing her student show, and she had a couple of friends that she invited to the show, and they were all sitting in the in the front row. And then our student show, we were doing a like a like a Q and A session, and someone from the audience asked a question. I don't remember what the question was, but um, she steps out, uh, Susanna, and she starts answering the question very confidently, like, "Yeah, it's a great experience because I learned this and that and that." And as she's answering this question, super confidently. I kind of glanced at the first row and I noticed that all her friends started to cry because it was the first time they'd ever seen her with that much confidence. Oh before. my
1: gosh. That's amazing. It's 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 incredible and I think you know I say this all the time, stand-up comedians have a tough time doing improv because they already have Confidence, and I would even lean to hubris, that they're better or funnier or more skilled than they actually are. The same goes for class clowns that show up to do improv. The people that already think that they're funny or that are already outwardly, you know, they're they're extroverts, they struggle with improv. And so I absolutely love it when I get an introvert that comes in and says, I don't think I'm going to be very good at this. I'm pretty shy. I'm like, you're actually going to be the best person in the class. Um,
0: Absolutely. I
1: have so many people in the cast that, you know, we get ready for a show. They don't want to talk to customers. They hide in the green room, they hang in the back. They just want to be to themselves. And then they, and then when they get up on stage, it's not that they light up. It's not this incredible like transition from, you know, to, to, to the Hulk. But I've got people that, that show up and are just so good at listening and knowing what needs to be added into a scene. And then they transform into whatever is needed. So, yeah, if you need a big energy character, they know it, they recognize it, they become it. then they shrink back down to size. Uh, or they get smaller, if need be. You know, um, they're incredible. It's the extroverts that are the hardest ones for me to train. I love them. I am one, so I understand because they typically are fun to, you know, they're the pirates in the scene. They're the ones that kind of tear shit up and they don't do a very good job of, of of keeping things in flight. They do a poor job of managing inventory. So luckily I've got a cast full of of folks that can pick up everything that I'm constantly breaking. Um, You know, and we only have two or three people that are like that because those types of people don't like to take notes. That's why they do stand up because they're on their own. I know that. I hold that dear to my heart. There was only so many times that I could be given notes that I didn't want to hear. So I was like, great, I'm going to go on my own. That way I don't have to hear notes from anyone except for the audience. I'm now much more open to it, but only through the process that I've been through of living through my 20s, 30s, and now midway through my 40s, that I'm a little more open (laughs) to criticism. I don't take it very well still, but I take it and I act as though I'm good with it. But I internalize a lot of it and think to myself, no, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Then I watch a tape of myself and I'm like, oh, no, no, no I no, that was bad. Yeah, I get that. <laughs> Introverts are so good at taking criticism and also not taking it personally. They're just great at listening and reacting in a real and an honest way. And they want to do it in the most abbreviated, short way so that they aren't exposed for more than they have to be. And I think that's what makes introverts generally better improvisers.
0: I hear you. Totally agree. Well, now Sick Puppies is at this really great time because you now finally have this permanent location, which of course you've dubbed the uh, the doghouse theater. What's that been like to now finally have your location that it's yours, it's not owned by anybody else, it's your home?
1: first of all, it's great. Uh, I I love it. It's, it's this sense of normality and stability that we've never had. We've worked out of um, places that no longer exist at this point because the, the business owners that ran there. So it was always a shared space. It was a children's theater by day. And then we would sublet it for the evening when they didn't have anything else going on. And we did that at two different locations we tried to do it at arts garage just a couple blocks away in in del rey um they had a tough time figuring out how to make us work and then we you know and then there were times where we didn't have a space and we operated out of a dance studio and then we would try to go do stuff at different performance venues but we but by the time we had our own space it was really easy so a lot of times people say hey i don't want my own space i don't want the obligation of having to pay rent i don't want the obligation of having to run regular programming week after week after week. I just want to improvise. I just want to perform. And that's fine. Go join a group and join a cast. Uh, Every single other person that's part of our cast, that's not me or Tom, that's all they want. And that, and I'm glad that's all they want. However, if anyone ever within my cast ever wanted to stand anything up, I'm I'm happy to help them and and help them grow their own thing because, you know, um, rising tides rise all ships, right? So if I can get somebody else in the cast that does the work that we already do at another place and great. We're just, now it's an actual community down here as opposed to improv places every 30 to 50 miles. So, um, by the time we got our space, I knew everything that we wanted to do. I had all the systems in place. I had all the documents written. Uh, I'm very business oriented since hence my degree in theater management and um the moment we were able to open our doors we closed eight weeks later because of COVID. (laughs)
0: goodness (laughs) we had everything
1: set up to succeed um tom signed the contract for the theater for doghouse in january 2020. we did um i think we did our first show in february and i think we started to cancel the first week of march and uh rent was paid by Tom for a year and a half. Without, From his own pocket? Without any income wow. coming in. Mm-hmm. Wow. And we had the opportunity to close. We had up, there was a new owner for the building. And I had suggested we should give it up and see if we can get some, some of that money back. And Tom said no. He said, I I got this. If it wasn't for Tom, sick puppies would be dead. It would be gone. He took on the burden and, you know, we worked out something in the end, but it was him that saved sick puppies and doghouse. If I had my way back in 2021, when we talked to the new landlord, uh, we would have not we would have been allowed to get out of our contract uh, and possibly gotten some of that money back. And then I would have just owed Tom money at that point for the rent that was paid. So, you know, we'd had a financial agreement between the two of us that sick puppies comedy operates at a Doghouse, house and please he's truly a great business partner and said, look, I, I'm tired of bouncing around. We have a space. Um, you've got the business acumen. I believe in you. I believe in sick puppies. I believe in what we're doing here. And when we opened up the doors, we blew off the doors. We brought in so many students and we ran so many shows and we had so many audience members. It was incredible. Yeah, we've had some slower months here or there, but there's never been a month that we've been anywhere close to losing money. And it's because Tom gives me the ability to make a lot of financial calls. And then I give him the leverage to make a lot of artistic calls. I and mean, of course, we talk about both. So I'd certainly like to have a lot of artistic input. But he is the director of our improvisers. He teaches the classes. I teach the classes. We've got Gage, who also teaches classes for us as well. He's this 19-year-old savant that makes feature films. And he's incredible. He's a wonderful talent. But we have this group of people that are so bought in to what it is that we do that, in fact, there were some things that were annoying them about the space. Just little stupid things. Tom and I show up to a Friday night show to open up the theater and get it started. And I just notice a lot of sh- stuff is different. And normally it's Tom that does it. So Tom puts in all the, the elbow grease. And, I mean, he, he, he's put his heart and soul into that space. And um, I walk in and there's just all these little professional things that are updated. A little uh, sign on the door that says uh, puppies only. Uh, A little thing on where we take uh, tickets, there's a little uh, skirt that's on there to make it look a little more professional. Um, Some additional signage. There's a door that was hanging weird that was fixed. Um, The bathrooms uh, looked cleaner. there were some things in the green room. The green room was a mess and it was all picked up and there was additional storage. And and what had happened was five of our cast members essentially broke into the theater at like 10 o'clock at night and worked until three in the morning to do improvements. Oh, wow. Unasked, no pay, unbelievable. Could not believe what had happened now, of course my fear is Tom's going to walk in the door and be like pissed and think that I did it and then yell at me, <laughs> but he comes in and he just looks around and I just remember the, the delight on his face as he wanders around the space, just going. Okay. Yes. That's something I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And uh, incredible. Uh, and yellow was the the main instigator of this. Put this all together. you know, Cause in yellow has been with us from the, from the beginning, you know, we had, mm-hmm. And Yellow, Tom and I are, I think, the three originals. But then I have a lot of the people from my original first class that are still around with us, too. And to see that level of emotional investment into our space, um, I think, speaks volumes of of what it is that that we do. And, um, and there's nothing I enjoy more than seeing customers come into our theater for the first time. Because, look, our theater is in the ghetto. It is... Uh, not a, like a great neighborhood. It's not violent. It's not like criminal activity. It's just, it's low income. And so there's a right. lot of interesting characters that wander around the space and it's attached to section eight housing. So our theater yeah. is attached to section eight housing. So you're like, are, am I going into somebody's apartment? Like, what are we, what are we doing here? <laughs> but once you walk in, it is the most improv of improv black box experiences you'll ever have. It is filled with love, filled with acceptance, filled with people that want to put on a great show. And I love nothing more than watching the disturbed faces of customers that have never been to our theater walking in the front door. Because it's not the front door. It's like a side door. It's real shady. They come in and they're just like so happy to see that there's real people inside because they're not sure. (laughs) And then from there, we get to wow and delight them. Because they've never seen anything like this before, you know. We do a show on Friday nights where we do stand up, then we do improv, based off of the stand up we just saw. Stand up, improv, stand up, improv. And we do that six times, and um, we call that the fucking vegan because Sean Began was the first person that ever did that for us twelve years ago. And then he, <laughs> then he didn't show up for a show that was named after him. Uh, so it used to be called the vegan. Now it's called the fucking vegan. Um, <laughs> fucking vegan, right? Uh, it was at the improv, by the way, up at West Palm beach. We were going to have drinks named after him in the whole nine yards. And like two days before the show, he's like, I can't make it. I was like, fucking vegan.
0: Oh, no way. Yeah,
1: <laughs> I love him very much. I think he lives out in Colorado now. He looks very happy. He does art. Very funny comedian. Uh, but I just remember going fucking vegan. Uh, <laughs> so there's nobody else in the country that does a show like that where it's local, stand-up comedians and every once in a while we get someone that's like a touring comedian that's looking to to do new stuff but it's a friday night so they're usually booked and we do the improv and so the comedians love the space because it's real paying audience members coming to see a show because most of the time they're stuck with open mics at a you know some kind of a, a, a you know, bar or strip club or something like this and people don't want to hear stand-up at a strip club but for whatever reason it still happens Um, You know, and then we have our Saturday shows, but I love people that kind of think they're coming in to see a stand-up show because I do make the listing for the shows seem kind of how I used to make the listing for classes, where it's like, come see comedy that's live. You know, you'll never know. No two shows are the same, but I never really say – Right. Improv. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you sneaky devil, you.
1: <laughs> so I love the idea of winning over these people, which we've done for years now. And so I'm so confident when people come in, the first time they see more than one person on stage and there's no microphone, I can see jaws drop of like, what? Well, what is this? Because when we used to list shows, the way shows can be listed in New York by UCB or IO or Second City. <sighs> we tried that and it didn't work. So when you you know name a show, uh, Bobby's uncle's pet squirrel, nobody would show up for that, for that show. <laughs> but if I put live comedy show in Delray beach, people don't read much more than that. And then when they see that I'm not listing names of people that are performing on stage, I think they just kind of assume, yeah, it's probably locals and we'll give it a shot. Um, so it's been a joy to be able to have that security to be able to run things exactly the way that i've wanted to even though i've been able to have so many test runs over the year in fact july of 2019 anthony francis reached out to me and said hey dude like i kind of don't want to run this theater anymore so uh we still want to do shows and our uh, contract runs out at the end of 2019 but would you guys like to fill in the gaps with shows and i said absolutely let's jump on it so we did kind of a trial run of taking all the open dates that Anthony didn't want and we took a lot of the garbage dates Fridays are harder to fill than Saturdays or we get holiday weekends or something like that and um, we were still able to kind of make it work and so you know when Tom wanted to take over the space I said no <laughs> <laughs> and he said, well, I'm, I'm, he said well I'm taking the space and you can run sick puppies out of it until you find your own I think we both knew what that meant, but still I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I'll find my own space eventually. <laughs> right. <laughs> then he names the fucking thing Doghouse Theater. Jesus Christ. You know? <laughs> so so he, you know, so he takes it over in January, we signed the contract. We open back up July twenty twenty one. And uh and it's great. And now we can do whatever we want, whenever we want the biggest trend transition and the biggest adjustment that I've had to make that Tom didn't necessarily have to make, cause he was used to to doing this where he had to collaborate with others to make decisions for the sake of a, of a theater. I was able to just do whatever I want, whenever I wanted. And so the biggest, and, and I'm over it at this point cause we've been at it for, for a few years now, but man, the beginning I was like, yeah, so we're going to do this show and blah, blah, blah. And Tom be like, I don't, I don't like that. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> and it used to be when someone would say, I don't like that. I'd be like, okay, well, you don't have to do it. Bye. And now <laughs> right now it's like, oh yeah, that's right. 50, 50. We're in this together. Got it. Yeah. Yep. And it's worked out really great because he'll push me in ways that I need to be pushed. And then I'll question things in ways that he needs to be questioned. Uh, pretty beautiful partnership, really wonderful friendship. And, um, and I really think that we're doing exactly what it is that we want to do, and we're doing things that nobody else is doing. And it's and it's it's what's what's finally putting our unique brand of what it is that we do out there, so that when people come to see what we do, versus what they come to see you guys do down at JTF or what Cat does up at um, Bob Carter's or what SAP does in Orlando, that. You go, yeah. JTF is doing something that nobody else is doing. Sick Puppy's doing stuff that nobody else is like. You have to go to these different venues because we're all doing things that nobody else is doing, and it's and it's such a, and it's good quality product too. So you know there have been things that have and you've seen them that some kind of still exist, but some that don't exist anymore. Where they're putting on a product that turns people off to improv, and it's what yeah. makes the art form kind of a joke overall. You know. Um, cause when, you know, the joke is like, uh, I don't, I don't hate you because of this, I hate you because you perform improv. <laughs> it was a meme <laughs> that I saw. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I get that. I've been to a lot of festivals and I, I, I don't do festivals anymore. I know you guys have the Miami improv festival to me. That's still the, uh, the, the gold standard for festivals in my opinion, um, so that's one that I wish I had more time or opportunity to go participate or, or be a part of, cause you guys actually care about quality and you continue to bring high quality acts in there and you continue to try to find ways to get new people in there that we haven't seen before that are also doing cool stuff. But most improv festivals are just like, it feels like a self help book signing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <You know? laughs> I hear you. Well, you know, Sick Puppies, I think, is definitely a testament to your drive and your passion, and I see everything that you do, and honestly, you, you you are definitely an inspiration to me, my friend. I mean, you've done so much, you continue to do so much, and you continue to learn, and I'm just very thankful to know you, I'm thankful to have had the opportunity to share the stage with you a few times, and I'm just very thankful to also just be able to call you my friend,
1: man. Uh. Uh, that's a, that's a very heartfelt thing to say LD. I, 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 you know, that I feel, uh, the same for, for you and, and, um, everything that we've been through and, the you know, for the last 10, 11 years, I remember you guys coming up when I had a barbecue years ago, a long time ago, it's gotta be like 10 years ago up, up to the house. And there's it just, it's so the, 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 thing that I take away from you, LD now, you're a great performer. I love, I, by the way, I'm a magic nerd too. Like my son loves to do that kind of stuff. I should really have my son. It, you know what? 100% I'm going to have my son come down to your place so that you can run card tricks and all kinds of stuff with him because he's all about that stuff. We're all about card tricks. I know three. But he's <laughs> he's all about it. I, I love it. It's one of the things I used to use as a, as a mechanism to get attention and to build friends. I thought one way you could make friends was to wow them. And card tricks will do that. Magic will do that. Uh,
0: Great. So I got a magic show coming up. How many tickets do you need?
1: (laughs) (laughs) I have a magic show coming up. I want to come see it. Um, uh, So here's the the thing about you that's different from everybody else in the improv world down here. You are universally liked by everybody. There's not a single person that I – so everyone knows you right? So everyone knows you. Everyone knows of you. You've been in the scene for a while. That shouldn't be a surprise. But everybody, not just likes you, loves you. You're kind human. There's not a mean bone in your body. I have been known to be mean. And I've been known to have some pretty opinionated views on things. You take everybody at whatever point in their life in, that they're in, you accept them, you welcome them with open arms, and you're a great example for what it means to be an improviser, you're very talented, what it means to be a performer, what it means to be a professional, what it means to be a friend, and I see how much love and care you have for your spouse and what it means for you to be a, um, a husband. And uh, uh, those are those are hard, hard shoes to, to fill. So I hope you recognize that about yourself.
0: Thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate that so much. Here's a, here's the last question, my friend. What is the one piece of advice that has served you well that you want everyone else to hear?
1: Ooh. (sighs) Okay. I'm going to answer that with a a dumb joke. Okay. There's a guy walks into a bar and uh, has a seat orders a drink and bartender serves him the drink and the next guy comes into the bar and he's pissed god son of a bitch god mother and the bartender says uh, sir rule number 5 oh, oh, thank you i'm so sorry has a seat stays quiet has a drink next guy comes in the bar cosmic son of a god mother da, 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 da. bartender look at the look at the sign Rule number five. Oh, I'm so sorry. Has a seat. This goes on a couple of times until eventually the guy that first comes in, looks at the bartender and says, what's rule number five? Because the sign just says rule number five. There's no explanation. It just says rule number five. And the guy says, don't take yourself so goddamn seriously. (laughs) And then He asked the bartender, well, then what are the other rules? He said, there are none. Mm. It's a rule that has served me so well in the last 20 years. Don't take yourself so seriously. Nothing is worth losing your mind over. Almost nothing is worth losing your mind over. There have been probably in most people's lives, four to five very significant moments in their life where they had to take it very seriously. But otherwise nothing else matters. Nothing that you do on a daily basis really fucking matters. Hmm. And if you can keep that in mind, when you start to get heated or enraged or mad or offended, if you can just remember rule number five, everything's going to work out.
0: Hmm. I love that. Casey, thanks so much for your time. I had an absolute blast, my friend.
1: Me too, man. Sorry to make your podcast twice as long as normal.
0: (laughs) Not at all, but this was great. Thank you so much, buddy. Thanks,
1: LD. You're the best.
0: Thanks so much, Casey, for talking to me today. And thank you for sharing with us rule number five. Don't take yourself so seriously and remember that it's all going to work out. Please be sure to check out Casey Kasperson performing with Sick Puppies. Learn all about them at SickPuppiesComedy.com. And learn all about their home theater at DogHouseTheater.com, where you can find out about shows, classes, and rentals. And after you check them out, check me out at TogetherByMyself.com to learn all about my solo improv show. I'd be happy to perform it at your venue sometime. I know I say this a lot, But thanks so much to all of you for being here and enjoying this podcast. You are all so important to me, and remember, you all matter. Until next time, I'm L.D. Madera, and thanks for joining me here on Improv and Magic.